Hi folks, welcome back to episode 42 of the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is another um, Epic Fitness Summit special edition and today I have Dr. Brad Schoenfeld. Hi Brad. Hey, you doing Mark? Hey mate. So, um, this is not the first time you've been on this podcast. You've been on uh, with Alan before. Um, so I know folks, if they've gone through what is now becoming a fairly significant back catalogue, as I just said, I've, this is the 42nd episode, I can't believe it. Um, but um, because we're um, doing this podcast uh, specifically aimed at um, supporting the Epic Fitness Summit, I know that you're um, one of the many people that are going to turn up in May. Um, and uh, of course, you're predecessors on this podcast like uh, Brad Schoenfeld, uh, Brad Schoenfeld, you are Brad Schoenfeld, uh, Alan Aragon, uh, Lane Norton, um, etc. have all been on uh, this past few weeks um, and I know you're going to be um, in uh, something that will be incredibly interesting which will be a specific debate um, with Fred Hahn about uh, resistance training and uh, how much you need and how best to do it and so on. So I know um, I know folks are going to enjoy a very special and unique experience um, at that event uh, between the two of you. And I don't really want to um, have you guys uh, reveal too much about what will be discussed. So what I wanted to do is whet people's appetite about your knowledge on this stuff. You've been pumping out enormous amounts of paper, Brad. Um, I, uh, I'm not sure... I can keep up with all the uh, research you're doing, um, and it's quality research at that, which is great. Um, but one paper I wanted to briefly discuss, because it is related to this, um, the Epic Fitness Summit um, topic that you're going to be speaking on, is uh, a paper you produced in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research back in uh, October 2010. Um, how time flies and that was the one on uh, mechanisms of muscle hypertrophy and their application to resistance training which is an excellent paper I don't mind saying Um, I've used it many times with my own students Um, Brad can you uh, uh, just just before we get into all this this uh, topic and so on because I really want to make sure people try and get hold of this paper as a reference to this this chat how how uh, because it's in Journal of Strength and Conditioning, which is um, a subscription journal. Um, how, apart from obviously subscribing, I mean, is that the best way for people to get hold of this? Yeah. Now, I, from what I understand, it is available if you search the net and in ways that people uh, have copyright infringement on the net. So I don't sure. not going to give out any specific websites, but yeah, it is a uh, paid the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research is the NSCA Journal, which is a paid journal. Awesome. So for folks that I may be um, coming to this podcast for the first time or a relatively recent. Do you want to just quickly remind us as to, to who you actually are? Sure. Um, I am a, an assistant professor at Lehman College in the Bronx. I'm also head of their human performance lab. I've published over 70 peer-reviewed papers. Uh, I'm a practitioner. Uh, I still do consulting, and I've had uh, over almost two decades uh, of owning my own facility, uh, which is a one-on-one facility. I've published 10 books. I'm currently working on a textbook on muscle hypertrophy. I lecture internationally on the subject, so I've had a lot of experience. I'm also now a columnist for Muscular Development Magazine. I uh, 
write the Max Muscle uh, Plan column, which is the name of my one of my books. Yeah, great. Actually, yeah, I I, I have purchased that book, um, not for any uh, specific reason linking to this podcast, but it's a great book for um, practical stuff. But we'll talk about that another time. Um, and I know you're going to be speaking at the ISSN conference um, in uh, Austin, Texas, where I'm also going to be speaking. But um, but anyway, let's fo- let's focus on this. So I know in May you're going to be talking about um, a similar topic, but this. This is a really popular topic, which is why um, you've become very popular because you're an expert in this field and it's clearly something that's of interest to huge numbers of people and obviously in the lay press like the uh, various muscle mags and so on that you've contributed to. But I mean, why, just as an overview, I mean, why, you know, why is this such a popular area in your opinion? Well, um, I mean, the name of my website is lookgreatnaked.com, and um, most people, certainly most younger people, train to improve their appearance. There's aesthetics is the primary driving force, and that means gaining muscle and losing body fat. Uh, so my specialty is in body composition, and I have really my primary focus is on muscle hypertrophy and gaining muscle, which... Again, for the general population, when talking younger people, is an aesthetic endeavor, but it's important to everyone, really. And certainly as we age, you start to lose muscle, which is called sarcopenia, the age-related loss of muscle, and the elderly, the functional losses that they experience is directly attributed to their age-related losses. So one only has to pick up you know, a muscle mag, and I'm not necessarily referring to ones that you contribute to, but, you know, they're popular everywhere. Wherever you are, uh, any high street, you walk into a newsagent's or an airport, you know, store or whatever that sells magazines, and you're going to find at least a half dozen magazines that have got some sort of article that has the, the latest magic bullet way of achieving just an absolutely amazing physique and it's of course some special unique recipe usually by some sort of guru but in reality um that is i mean that that sort of thing is is i mean we're far from the magic bullet don't you think there is no such thing as ma- magic bullet per se now i will say that resistance training really is the fountain of youth mm. that there's nothing that will uh, that will enhance your overall sense of being more than resistance training from a physical and and mental really every aspect of your body um, nature so resistance training is as close as we have to the magic bullet the only thing is it's not just the pill you can swallow there's effort involved and the unfortunate thing is that many people don't want to expend the necessary effort to achieve those results yeah I I mean obviously body composition is is a fascinating topic because of course there are plenty of people out there that, that lift and they continue to lift to try and get a better body um, except that there are some other problems insofar as they may be increasing their muscle mass but they've got plenty of fat mass um, covering up their muscles so of course they uh, they don't really see that physique and I, I mean I've said it quite a few times on Twitter you know um, if, if you know, if you want a, you know, you want a six pack. Well, we've all got a six pack. It's just for most people, it's covered in body fat. So, I mean, we, I want to focus on muscle hypertrophy in a minute, but let's just briefly outline body composition and why it is important we think about body composition rather than just going to the gym to increase muscle mass. 
Well, body composition is the uh, percentage of fat mass and muscle mass. Um, that really depends upon what you're looking to accomplish. So obviously, I shouldn't even say obviously, but obesity, if, you're, if you have a, a lot of excess body fat, there's going to be negative health ramifications. Now, when you start getting into moderate levels of body fat, even just being overweight, it's equivocal even in, let's say, BMIs. BMI, we can also get into. There's issues as far as the relevancy. But on the average person, if, you have, if you're considered overweight, there's equivocal evidence whether that really negatively has an effect on health. Um, a lot of it depends upon where the fat is stored and other measures. But what it comes down to is, number one, your feelings about yourself outside of the health ramifications, how you feel about yourself, and if you're playing any type of sports and other uh, related activities, it also can have an effect is the amount of fat you carry. So look, there's nothing that says that being 5% body fat is any healthier than being 15% body fat. So within a certain range, as a matter of fact, when you start getting too low, there's a certain, especially for women, there's reasons why it can actually be unhealthy and very low ranges. So uh, that really is up to the individual as to how, how much body fat they want to carry be, uh, below that health threshold. Sure. Yeah, and I, I've had a lot of um, experts on here. Um, we've talked about the importance of muscle mass for uh, longevity. We've talked about the importance of muscle mass for performance in many different scenarios. We've even referred to the role that muscle mass can have in um, soaking up all the uh, uh, extra, uh, you know, glucose and sugars, etc., that might be flying around, and um, the roles that that might have for metabolic health and all that stuff. But you know, it, it it is fair to say that it is an attractive thing to most people. Um, one of the benefits of working out um, is undoubtedly improvements in health and so on. But it's that. It's that thing about gaining extra muscle, getting bigger guns, having a bigger chest or having firmer glutes, you know, whatever. That There's something magic and special about muscle mass itself. Um, so in the interests of muscle mass itself, you know, I think it's no longer a new word, um, muscle hypertrophy or hypertrophy. But I think what is... Um, not so well known, is that there are various types of muscle hypertrophy. So could you give us a bit of background behind the types of muscle hypertrophy? Or firstly, sorry, explain what hypertrophy is um, and then the types of muscle hypertrophy. Yeah, uh, muscle hypertrophy is uh, the growth, basically it's growth of, of muscle tissue. Uh, hyper means increase and trophy is growth. So, so uh, when you talk about muscle hypertrophy, it's the growth of muscle there's two primary ways that can happen. You can either add sarcomeres. Basically, it's achieved by adding sarcomeres, which are the functional units of muscle, either in series, which is longitudinally. That's kind of like links in a chain. If you're thinking about adding muscle in series, you're adding another link in a chain, so it's along the long axis, whereas in parallel is the other way, which is kind of like sardines in a can, where you're uh, stacking them next to each other. And the primary way, so in series hypertrophy seems to be predominant in early phase within the first several weeks of training. Um, it has ramifications more for speed, uh, for increasing the um, power speed of, of performance, whereas uh, in parallel uh, increases the girth 
to to a much larger extent. That's where, and that's the primary mechanism, primary way that your body grows muscle, especially after those first several weeks. Now there is some theories that uh, training in with eccentric loads might have uh, greater effects on um, on in series, and that um, and others, various other factors, and those are somewhat equivocal at this point. If you can pretty how much you can actually regulate differences between in series and in parallel after the first uh, several weeks or months of training. And of course, there, I mean, I think it's worth briefly mentioning that there is a difference between how big your muscles are and how strong you are. Because, of course, there is this assumption that, and, and there is, you know, I would assume uh, you're the expert, not me, but there is a relationship between to a certain extent, between how much muscle you've got and how strong you're going to get. But it isn't, it isn't a direct, um, absolute thing, is it? No, that's absolutely correct. So several things are going to dictate that. Number one, the fiber type hypertrophy that you experience, if you're going to get a lot of growth in your type 1 fibers uh, vis-a-vis your, versus your type 2 fibers, um, type 1 fibers do not produce strength to nearly the same extent that type 2 fibers can. So that will somewhat regulate uh, how much strength you have. And also strength is highly neurally based. So your ability to uh, increase rate coding, which is the frequency of stimulation, synchronization, doublet fire, firing, and other factors also are going to enter into your strength. Um, strength is also going to be genetically predisposed based upon your insertion, uh, tendon insertions into the uh, bone. So there's a lot of things that outside of muscle, while there is that direct relationship, it is not a linear, pure linear relationship. So, and of course, we, you know, we're talking about hypertrophy, um, some, simplistically but accurately, is the increase of, um, of muscle tissue. But also, one, if, if you start reading about this stuff, particularly in the animal literature, you do start to come across that word hyperplasia a bit. But of course, there's some mixed data out there and different ideas, although it seems to be coming back into um, the literature from what I've been reading lately, this, this business of hyperplasia. Could you maybe just give us a, a brief hint at what you think about that? Sure. Um, the So hyperplasia is basically a splitting of muscle fibers where they get to a certain size and then they're going to break off and they form another fiber. Uh, so rather than growing the fiber itself, you're actually making new fibers. It's really the production of new fibers. So there is some evidence that it happens. Certainly in, in animal species, there's been evidence um, and even some indirect, some, some human studies as well. Now, several factors need to be taken into account. Number one... The methods used to assess uh, hyperplasia are very difficult. Basically, you're counting fibers one by one under a microscope, which there's uh, been some talk that the um, that gains attributed to hyperplasia have been due to miscounting and other, fac- uh, uh, other factors that are unrelated to hyperplasia. Um, there also, the protocols used to induce hyperplasia in animals are extreme protocols. So... I mean, one of them, my good buddy, and I know your uh, friend too, Joey Antonio, mm. uh, did a lot of his doctoral work in this area. And they took a bird and they attached uh, weighted implements to the wings for 24 hours. And then they'd unload them and attach them for another 24 hours and go through this process. And it, it really doesn't reflect normal training processes. So do I think that hyperplasia can occur? Yes. 
Um, and also, by the way, there are things, we have what are called satellite cells, which are basically muscle stem cells that are quiescent in, uh, unless they're put under load. And once they are activated through loading, they become active and they can actually, there's evidence that they can form, they can join together to form new fibers as well. So I would say that it is possible for hyperplasia, although we're still not clear. I would say with a good degree of confidence that it doesn't contribute a lot to the hypertrophic process under normal training conditions, that you really would need extreme training conditions to make it substantiative if it really can, which we're still not clear on. And I think there is evidence that perhaps uh, the use of uh, anabolic steroids might contribute to that as well because you get increased uh, satellite cell activity and that might actually en enhance that effect and certainly I wouldn't discount that other factors if you're going to have ex these extreme training calls might uh, make hyperplasia more of a factor. Sure yeah I, uh, I, uh, it's been a few weeks ago now but I did a podcast with Stu Phillips um, he's been on a few times actually but we've we got into the whole hormone hypothesis and you know it, it was really interesting to differentiate the impact of um, things like testosterone um, from natural testosterone production as compared to um, the huge amounts and, and just the sheer almost permanent presence of it in the system when you're sticking needles uh, in yourself. But um, we'll, we'll talk about hormones in a minute. But um, we, you just briefly mentioned about satellite cells. And I, and I do think that that is an interesting area because, of course, you know, muscle tissue... Um, actually doesn't really go uh, undergo significant cell replacement throughout its lifespan, does it? No, that's correct, that the muscles need ways to regenerate. And so muscles are multinucleated, meaning they have multiple nuclei. Nuclei are what produce the proteins to, uh, to increase growth, to increase hypertrophy. Um, and muscles need constant regeneration through these satellite cells. They are they, uh, by... So satellite cells can not only... Um, initiate repair and, and like I said potentially join together to make new fibers but they also donate their nuclei uh, to tissue so that they can produce more um, more muscle tissue more proteins and by um, by being activated the satellite cells what's really kind of neat is that the satellite cells there's a defined amount so let's say you're you have a certain number of nuclei for a given um, muscle fiber it can only produce a certain amount of proteins and you're only then going to be able to grow to a certain extent by allowing this increase in nuclei within the, the fibers, you end up being able to produce a lot more proteins to enhance growth well above your, your natural rate, what you would have without these additional nuclei. Great, thank you. So that, that brings me on um, because there, to another topic, which actually there is some relationship between this and uh, the myogenic pathways, and um, I've done some podcasts lately with uh, Keith Barr, um, Lee Hamilton, and such that have done lots of research on this, and we have discussed things like mTOR and AKT, AKT etc. But could you just give us an overview of this business of uh, molecular signaling? Um, because most of us, you know, we go to the gym, we lift weights, often one's thoughts might go as far as what goes to fuel that exercise. We do 
um, certainly think about um, the potential impact of uh, muscle damage or muscle stress, and we'll talk about those in a second. But it's the stuff that goes on, the actual communications that goes on at the uh, cellular or intracellular level that I find particularly fascinating. I know it's something that people don't know enough about. So perhaps you could give us an overview of the um, uh, of some of those areas that that uh, that exist in these myogenic pathways. Sure, uh, mechanical stimuli are transduced into chemical signals within the body, and that's how protein synthesis takes place. So we have our anabolic pathways, which are going to carry out our anabolism, which is protein synthesis ultimately. We have catabolic pathways, which carry out protein degradation, amongst other things. Um, and there's kind of this yin and yang relationship. So our anabolic signaling pathways, and there's been multiple pathways that have now been identified. Uh, and the, it's still really in its infancy where we, we've come so far in terms of uh, starting to understand this process, but we still have a really long way to go in understanding the interactions between the processes. So we have, as you mentioned, there's the um, AKT pathway, which can... Um, so, which is an upstream. So, these are we have upstream, meaning that they're at the top, and then they signal down to our downstream pathways to ultimately carry out protein synthesis. So, AKT is mTOR is considered a molecular nodal point, which uh, of muscle hypertrophy, which is uh, it's completely required for having optimal protein uh, protein synthesis. You're not going to have optimal hypertrophy if mTOR is not activated. Doesn't mean you can't have any. There can still be hypertrophy apparently without mTOR, but it's significantly blunted. So we're looking, when you're looking to maximize hypertrophy, mTOR is a critical pathway. AKT signals it. Uh, there's the MAPK pathways, which uh, can signal it. Uh, we have um, calcium-dependent pathways that are involved. There is even mTOR can be signaled in a non-directly by um, what's called um, phosphatidic acid. Um, and phosphatidic acid can bypass these pathways and have a direct impact on M mTOR. And then from mTOR, there's a signaling downstream, further downstream, and ultimately carrying out protein translation. And again, not to get too technical in an interview like this, but uh, if you can drive protein synthesis to a higher level, that's going to ultimately drive muscle hypertrophy, assuming because protein synthesis has to be balanced against protein breakdown, assuming that protein breakdown is kept constant. So if you have increased protein synthesis, but you're also getting increased protein breakdown, you're then gonna, you're, it's gonna end up evening itself out. So the protein synthesis has to be in excess of the breakdown to drive the hypertrophic process. And if you can increase synthesis while decreasing breakdown, that's your hypertrophy home run. Excellent. So we've talked about um, different kinds of um, hypertrophy. Um, we've talked about um, the myogenic uh, pathways. We've touched upon the satellite cells and the roles that they might play. And of course, I inferred uh, a little bit earlier about the roles that hormones can play. And of course, this this is again this is another sort of sexy area um, in this area: um, hormones and cytokines, um, which are often abused a bit by, I guess, when people sensationalize their, their approach, um, uh, you know, or their supplements or whatever, it tends to be at this level, doesn't it, where they're like, oh, well, this is going to increase your testosterone or, you know, this product increases IGF-1 responses or whatever. I mean, you know, what is, 
I mean, what is what is this role that hormones and cytokines play, and and, and what are they? I got that back to front, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to first separate um, hormones, and when you talk about cytokines, we're talking about myokines, which are direct, released directly from muscle. Those are muscle-derived cytokines. Uh, hormones are secreted into the bloodstream uh, and act on target tissues uh, through the blood. Um, and things like testosterone, growth hormone, certain isoforms of IGF-1 are all um, hormonal. Their effects um, at physiologic levels, there seems to be a, so this again, it's not, we're still sorting some of this stuff out and I really can't speak in absolutes when I'm talking about this. I know some people want to give concrete answers and we just don't have enough knowledge. It's not, been, in my opinion, well studied enough to give that. What I'd say is, is that within a physiologic level, if you're going to have, let's say, testosterone, if you're going to have levels that are below what your the physiological norm, it's going to be difficult for you to build muscle. But within a range, let's say within 300 to 1,000, uh, tes testosterone levels within 300 to 1,000, uh, would not have significantly different effects, at least from what we can determine. Now, as you're starting to get to those higher levels, let's say you're up in that eight, 900 thousand range uh, over over and above you're going to start to perhaps get more you'll have an enhanced muscle building but if you can let's say increase testosterone levels from 400 to 500 is that going to have a tangible effect to the best of the knowledge that I have and from what we can ascertain from the literature no um, I know there's also been a lot of uh, talk about the acute hormonal response and while some of the early work did point to a benefit and there's been some it's still, in my opinion, somewhat of an equivocal topic because there's even been some other research that contradicts. I know Stu Phillips, who you mentioned, has quite a lot of research which refutes any role of it. And there's been some work out of, um, I think it was Norway, uh, one of the uh, those yeah, regions discussed, there. Yeah, we discussed that very soon. Um, yeah. Which contradicted that. What I would say is, is that if there is any benefit, um, in my humble opinion, it would be small. And I question whether, if there is, I'm questioning it uh, because, again, I think there's now been, especially coming from the, the lab of Stu, Stu Phillips, uh, some pretty compelling evidence that, uh, that it really does not amount to that much. Uh, so could it have an effect? Perhaps. But if it is, it would be small in my opinion. Now, the, the myokines, on the other hand, uh, do have, or at least from what we can gather, there's, they can carry out much more substantiative effects on muscle building. So they're internally derived, they're secreted directly from muscle. And one of the um, isoforms of, um, of IGF-1 called uh, mechanogrowth factor, MGF has been implicated in that process. So it's directly secreted by muscle and it's thought to kickstart the muscle building process. Some new evidence shows that perhaps we need to question its role. So this is really an emerging field uh, of study and a lot of times what we know now is is still in development and what we know we we have not had uh, compelling evidence in that res uh, that respect where I can say conclusively that any of these factors are critical uh, but there are certainly many many myokines and we keep discovering new ones hepatogrowth factor and fibrograss fibroblast uh, growth factor so many other um, myokines that are secreted and that have been implicated in the muscle building process, how these things actually uh, pan out in terms of muscle building is still still in the early stages. 
Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. When you, you start off at, say, the level of your... Uh, I'll try and be uh, politically correct about all this. So you start off at the level of, of whatever you're taught in your PT certification, and it's, this stuff's a fact. You then, you then you know, get to graduate school and you start to realise, um, you know, at your master's level that uh, these things are more complicated. And then you get to, to the guys that are at the doctoral level and obviously it becomes all very new and leading edge and everyone's got their own different views. And then you get to the postdoctoral level and then it's like, oh, no, it's not that, it's this. And I mean, the fact is, and I've certainly dis- discovered this on this podcast, which has really opened up my mind, of just how far away we are from knowing anything. <laughs> uh, we really You're absolutely know. right. Well, yeah. So here's something to remember, too, that what it's very difficult to study like an individual myokine or even hormone within the body because there's so many other factors going on. So we can, if you can isolate it in a Petri dish and we take it, you know, um, in vitro or even ex vivo, you can isolate things to a much greater extent and say, hey, this, this builds muscle. But how that ends up playing out in vivo when other things are going on in the body becomes very difficult because you can't tease out other variables. So studying these things, well, we'd like to think that, hey, we're at a level of science where we can just know, uh, we can figure out everything based upon a, a study. It just doesn't happen in that way because of the complexities of the human body and the confounding issues that you can't control during a scientific experiment or, you, or that are very difficult to control. Yeah, no, and that's a very important fact. And I, I just think it's worth making a point, you know, and all the listeners, uh, some yeah. of this stuff they'll know, some of them they'll be like, ah, you know, that, that's a new idea, that's a new concept to me. And that's the point of these podcasts is, is to try and deliver, for the most part at least, this sort of cutting-edge stuff, um, yeah. which is going to take ages before they start reading about it in the textbook um, in school, which, of course, is years out of date by that point. So, um, so uh, you know, um, moving on to another area then, which is, uh, again, um, an interesting sort of phenomenon that can occur when you employ certain training strategies is this sort of this this pump where you you know you get all swole okay so the uh, the cell swelling phenomenon can you just mm-hmm. describe that for us please sure cell swelling is when a muscle when there's a increase in hydration within a muscle so muscle attracts water <clears throat> excuse me after a training bout there's a swelling effect and that can happen through several factors um through uh Osmolites that are attracted through muscle damage can cause increases in swelling too, which lasts over a longer period of time. But there is this temporary pump phenomenon, which is induced by a um, loss of where water is pushed out into the interstitial spaces. Then uh, it's you have this reactive hyperemia where the water gets attracted back in and osmolites attract an even greater amount of water. And that lasts for an hour or two post-workout. And there's certainly a lot of evidence, in vitro evidence, that a hydrated cell, when you can increase the size of a cell through hydrating it, it will increase protein synthesis and decrease um, muscle protein breakdown, proteolysis. And that, as we talked about, is a hypertrophy home run. So at least from a conceptual standpoint, hypothetically, the pump might, um, we can hypothesize that this same effect by increasing swelling 
within the cell that the cell perceives a threat to its integrity. Kind of like think about a water balloon that's filled up. Well, if you keep filling up a water balloon beyond a certain point, what happens to the water balloon? It's going to pop. Well, a cell, if it perceives a threat to its integrity, what's it going to do so it doesn't have structural issues? It's going to increase its uh, muscle protein so that it can resist. It's going to increase its strength by increasing the uh, strength of the hypertrophy of the tissue so that it can resist this swelling effect. And hypothetically, we can say that, hey, maybe the pump then will initiate a increase in uh, muscle growth. Whether that actually plays out in practice, again, has not been studied uh, to any, any sense that I would be comfortable in saying, hey, this is a, a clear and, and uh, and known way to go about training. What I would say is without other knowledge, the fact that there's a logical basis to it and the fact certainly that there's no evidence to refute it would say that it's probably a good idea to include that in there until we can figure things out that it certainly has the potential <clears throat> to enhance muscle growth. And there's been um, thoughts uh, using blood flow restriction training, which is very light load training with <clears throat> tying off uh, part of the muscle so that there's a hypoxic effect and more uh, reactive hyperemia so that there's greater cell swelling, that that induces greater hypertrophy. Uh, so again, hypothetically, uh, there's a good basis for it, but we still need a lot more evidence. And this is another instance where it's very difficult to tease out the effects of other things going on just from the cell swelling in vivo versus, because you really, how are you going to do it without, um, without having some type of trauma to the tissue and then not blaming the tissue trauma for the hypertrophic effect. Sure. Yeah, it's, um, you, you mentioned uh, blood flow restriction. I, I've got Dr. Jeremy Lenicky coming on um, in the near future to, uh, to share his, his knowledge in that. And of course, uh, you know, and I'll get into that with Jeremy some more and a bit more about the whole hypoxia sort of effect. Um, but it is interesting how people are very much attracted by these novel things. Um, and yet it's like in, you know, basic nutrition, mastering the basics is probably more important, at least initially, you know, um, but since I mentioned that then, so let, let's, uh, basics that is, so let's, let's talk about these things that initiate exercise induced muscle hypertrophy. And I know that, that it's, you know, there's three basic factors that are generally considered. Could you take us through what they are, please? Yeah, there are three basic factors, but there are sub-factors within the three basic factors. <clears throat> so in my paper, I, um, I broke it down into three primary factors, um, mechanical tension, metabolic stress, and muscle damage. And um, within that, we can get into sub-factors, but um, mechanical tension is the forces that are acting on a muscle. So higher forces would be, uh, translate into greater mechanical tension. We do know that, that without mechanical tension, you're not going to have any significant hypertrophy. Now, there is some evidence that even just using blood flow restriction um, in people who are sedentary and bedridden can actually induce a, a mild hypertrophic effect. But for the most part, you're not going to achieve any hypertrophy without a stimulus, a mechanical stimulus acting. So this is kind of the the basic factor that needs to be um, initiated. Now, that would if it's just mechanical tension, we'd say that, hey, if you trained with 95% um, of your 1RM, that's going to always have a better effect than training with 30% of your 1RM. And that has been called into question. That And certainly, 
even less uh, extreme, so let's say 95% versus 65%, um, there is compelling evidence that lighter loads can produce as good or perhaps even better, certainly as good hypertrophy as uh, higher mechanical um, loads that are inducing higher mechanical tension. So other factors seem to play a role as well. Now, metabolic stress is the buildup of metabolites. Um, lactic acid is a primary one. Inorganic phosphate is another. So these metabolites that are um, induced uh, through a training stimuli. Uh, now, certain types of, of training, so your more moderate rep training is going to have greater metabolic buildup because you don't get, when you're training with your low loads, with your very heavy weights, you're in your uh, phosphagen system and there's really no um, lactic acid buildup or very little. Um, so that gives you a different stimuli and really a at least a working basis for why some of the lighter loads might contribute more or as much to hypertrophy as lower loads or, or heavier loads. And then um, um, the damage, uh, muscle damage to tissue, initiates um, another response. And so, again, this is a really interesting area. I wrote a whole review paper on this. Um, but there's an inflammatory response which causes myokines, uh, substantial myokine production through muscle damage. And there also is evidence that um, muscle damage enhances satellite cell activity. This has been well documented now whether that does it over and above an effect that's going to um, have negative effects that, that um, would counteract the negative effects of the damage itself is in question. So with muscle damage, there seems to be kind of a U-shaped curve that there's some muscle damage is beneficial. Obviously, too much would have a negative effect. Uh, and if you don't get any, that you might not, there might not be the enhanced stimulus to achieve maximal hypertrophy. So with all that said, and going through the three mechanisms, what's not clear is how they uh, aggregate together, whether there is a synergistic effect, whether they're additive, or whether if you have a certain level of mechanical tension, well, basically then the metabolic stress and lower tension loads would just come up to equal that mechanical tension, or would it surpass it, or how much uh, muscle damage would be additive to it. These are things that we don't, don't know at this point. Again, very difficult to tease out these effects of training. Um, but m at least from a speculative standpoint, I think that there is kind of a sweet spot where if you have um, fairly high mechanical loads above a certain threshold, and what that threshold is is difficult to say, um, combined with um, that would induce metabolic stress and have a degree of muscle damage that that would optimize the hypertrophic response. With that said, I am of the opinion that training through a spectrum of loading ranges, because the loading ranges ultimately will determine the response, uh, the metabolic stress, uh, mechanical tension, and muscle damage, I think that training through a spectrum of them is the, the answer anyway, because there's also differential, or at least the potential for differential effects on muscle, the different muscle fiber types, type one versus type two, and the, the spectrum of um, motor units. So, thank you. So we, we've, we've talked about um, factors like mechanical tension and muscle damage and metabolic stress. And, you know, it, I, I think there's lots of different directions we could go with some of that. But I think it's fair to say that to a certain extent, then, there isn't necessarily only one way 
of achieving this goal. And there's definitely something to be said for, for, for doing exercises that you actually enjoy that fit into some of those categories. Because, of course, you, you, you do find some people that are just bashing their heads against bricks, wall, brick walls trying to do something which they don't enjoy, the result being they're not very consistent with it, which, of course, is a factor. So... Um, that, well, if I can interrupt yeah, there just please. for a sec, to, yeah. just to build on what you're saying, which I yeah. think is a really important point. Yeah. Um, there is clear evidence at this point that um, you can achieve hypertrophy, as you said, training in any of the like, high loading ranges, moderate loading ranges, or low loading ranges, and you can get substantial hypertrophy. And for the when I talk about the average person, if you're just looking for some good results, really it's not going to matter all that much. When I'm talking in terms of combining, I'm talking about optimal strategies for someone who whose goal is, hey, I want to maximize every last amount of muscle in my body. That's where I want to be a bodybuilder. I want to there's sporting aspects I'm looking to optimize. I just want to look my best at the beach. That's where we can talk about the optimization strategies. But for the average Joe or Jane who's just looking to get more muscular, more fit, um, get some strength, you can train through even the very low loading ranges. I have a paper coming out in Well-Trained Subjects which shows very similar muscle hypertrophy in um, a very high rep, a 30 rep versus a 10 rep loading range. So this hypertrophy range versus a high loading range, and these are well-trained subjects. Where it's <coughs> substantial no, muscle great. growth on the same, roughly the same order. Great. No, I look forward to reading that. And I, you know, uh, I think we're all confronted with these sort of concerns of, oh God, am I lifting heavy enough or have I gone to failure or, you know, uh, and it, it is great to know that for the interests of variety and or the tools that you find available at, at the time of your workout. Like I, I'm, a, as you are, I guess, travel a lot and you, you end up in some gyms and they've got weights heavy enough for absolute beasts to lift and then you end up in gyms where, you know, your 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 children could could lift. You know, so uh, the fact that things like training variables, intensity, volume, the types of exercises that you choose, uh, even factors like rest, uh, and like I mentioned earlier, going to failure and even the speed of, of repetition. There's different sort of ideas and thoughts that relates to that. Could you possibly take us through? Um, some of those uh, some of those variables. Well, I don't want to trump to this, so that's where I don't want to kind of cross that bridge and, and, ah. and trump what I'm going to do at the there end. You go. Well, that's what right. I, I will say yeah. is that um, I've done a lot, a huge amount of work in this area, both on an original research basis and in meta analyses and in systematic reviews recently, looking at all these variables. What I will say is that manipulating variables for those again who are looking to optimize. Uh, muscle growth is a very important process, and that involves exercise selection, var variation in exercise selection. I just mentioned uh, training through a spectrum of loading ranges. Um, there are implications for um, rest intervals, and I have a, actually a really interesting paper or really interesting study that's being concluded right now. We're just concluding data collection that shows some very interesting uh, results, which I will present at that summit. Uh, so really all the variables systematically varying them. And one thing I will add here, which I think is, is relevant, is doing it in a manner that periodizes. And, and we can get into 
the science of periodization or the lack of it in terms of the research. But what's clear is, is that if you continue to train at very high levels all the time, you're going to end up being overtrained. If you're really maxing out, pushing your body and pushing your body. So we need periods of deloading. And that to me is a period of, that's the essence of periodization is balancing uh, the manipulation so that you have periods of recuperation. And that involves having kind of this wave-like pattern of higher volumes, higher um, uh, higher loading, uh, higher intensities of loading, and other factors, and then having periods where you're going to bring it down and then have a recuper have recuperation. And that's a, a very individual process. That's where the art of training comes in. We can't cookie cutter that and say three weeks on, one week one week deload, three weeks. That's a you can use that as a shell as a template. But people respond differently. Some people can go a lot longer. Training status, genetics. Nutrition, there's so many factors that are going to enter in and, and dictate the ultimate um, protocol that you're going to end up using on someone that uh, I couldn't even begin to give any hardline sure. guidelines there. Yeah, no, sure, sure. Well, you know, look, you've, you've covered a lot of ground here and, um, you know, that's, that's impressive within uh, a 45 to 50 minute podcast. But obviously this is a huge area and it warrants far more reading and many of your papers of course will, will take us there but I, I, I would love to um, just before we end this podcast just just try and introduce a, a, a sort of a little practical application to this I mean I know that there's lots of different variables and there's lots of different scenarios but for anyone looking to uh, increase muscle mass what what would you summarize as being the main things we should bear in mind uh, practically speaking so number the first and foremost is is that there is a dose response relationship between volume and muscle growth and again I'm sure we'll get into this a lot at the summit uh, but increasing volume uh, up to a certain extent and there is a u-shaped curve to this as well so if you keep doing volume too much volume that's going to end up ultimately having a negative effect but um, certainly there is a compelling evidence that higher volumes translate into greater hypertrophy uh, so you want to systematically bring up volume and then, as I mentioned, have periods where you're going to have lower volumes uh, so that you don't overdo it. But we want to build towards an overreaching phase with volume, um, training through different loading ranges, as I mentioned, to get the full spectrum of fiber types uh, hypertrophied. Uh, and there might be other mechanisms as well that we are not clear on as to what's going to uh, what goes on as to their effects on hypertrophy at this point is another really important thing. Um, and finally is, is making sure that you're pushing your body. So if you're constantly, I, I think there is an importance to, uh, well, certainly we know there's a, an importance to challenging your muscles, but taking your muscles close to, if not to failure on a frequent basis. And finally, varying the exercise selection because muscles hypertrophy in, in regional manners and that using different exercises over time will um, optimize the symmetrical development of your body. If you keep using the same exercise, it's going to work certain aspects of the muscle and leave out others because muscles are very complex. They're not one entity. They're In most cases, even we know that fibers... Uh, fibers don't even hypertrophy along the, the length in a uniform fashion. So different heads of muscles will hypertrophy differently. And certainly the, the only way you can optimize the entire spectrum, hypertrophy the entire spectrum of, of muscle fibers throughout all the muscles in the body is through a variation of exercise selection. 
Thank you, Brad. That was awesome. You are a fountain of information. Um, I know folks are going to want to come listen to you at the Epic Fitness Summit. They can learn more about um, the whole summit that's occurring here in the UK uh, between May 15th and 17th. Uh, just go to epic-summit.co.uk. Because you're uh, listening to this podcast, you can get a, a nice little discount on that by uh, using the code Guru EFS. So that's just Guru as it's spelled E-F-S, Echo Foxtrot uh, Sierra or Epic Fitness Summit. So, um, Brad, how can folks learn more about you? I know you've got a website and you referred you've got a nice book um, and uh, people can learn um, about all the things that you're up to at your website, which is what? It's lookgreatnaked.com. And I have an active blog that I, uh, that I have on the site, as well as uh, a lot of my articles. My papers are on, um, on the site as well under the article section. So all free. And I have a newsletter that they can subscribe to as well. It's a free newsletter where I send out content on a regular basis. That's brilliant. And, um, and social media-wise, I know you're active on Facebook and various other things. What's your uh, Twitter? Mm-hmm. Uh, Twitter is at Brad Schoenfeld. Brilliant. Awesome. <laughs> Well, listen, um, I've, I've really enjoyed having this um, discussion with you. Um, it, it's always good to talk to you and have you on this uh, podcast. I look forward to seeing you at the Epic uh, Summit, where I'll just be sitting there in the audience somewhere. But I'm also looking forward to seeing you as a fellow speaker at the ISSN uh, conference in, um, in Texas this year. So uh, one way or the other, we'll, we'll be seeing you again. So anyway, that brings us to the end of the Guru Performance Epic Fitness We Do Science podcast. And you can learn more about everything that we're doing at Guru Performance at guruperformance.com.